to me, in my experience in watching founders and entrepreneurs operate, they have a, a very similar mentality because there's a lot of disbelief. You're going to get told no a million times. No, not a good idea. No, I don't believe you. No, you're not getting money. No, And you're going to hear that a million times before someone might say, okay, great. Or you're going to have to prove them wrong. And if you're going to prove them wrong, can you do it all by yourself? Or you can bring people along with you who are going to believe. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks. I talked to, um, I'm blanking on his name, your direct report. Ryan Mayor. Uh, connect for you, right? Yeah. He asked me the same question that you asked me, which was, why Seth? <laughs> <laughs> and you asked the same question, like, why me? And I said, because there are not many people that have the career trajectory that you've had in the sense of you go to Amazon, then you go to Microsoft, you start doing your ad sales career in Microsoft, right? You go to Yahoo, you go back to Amazon, you build Amazon's ad business, then you go to Instacart, you're the CRO of Instacart, and then you go to Walmart, like who does that? You know, like it was just (laughs) such a unique set of jumps that I said, that's why I wanted him on. Well, how I got started and really with advertising, digital marketing, I should say, at Amazon the first time around, I was buying. So I wasn't selling, I was buying ads. Like how do we get traffic into Amazon to shop at Amazon? This was 2000. Yeah, 2000. Yeah. And what got me excited about going to Amazon and working in tech was that during business school, I started like what my summer internship after first year of school, there was, you know, Johnson and Johnson, you could work on, you know, over the counter products or traditional CPG products. And that stuff just didn't interest me. Mm -hmm. Like I want to be in music or do something media oriented. So I couldn't find anything to do. So a startup was recruiting at the school and by startup, I mean like angel backed startup. Uh-huh. And it was an Israeli guy who was the angel who investor who had created a apartment space. He was using in the building he owned, letting two companies use a single apartment on West Fourth and Broadway, like right next to NYU, right across from Tower Records, actually at the time. RIP. And yeah, RIP, no getting. And the Two companies that were in there were both Israeli founded, uh, founders, I should say. And one was a relative, the nephew of the angel investor. And the other were these kids. They were like probably 20 years old. And so I was working for a company that was doing micropayments, you know, an idea that's still ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. And we were trying to figure out like, how do you get someone to pay 25 cents for a New York Times article or yeah. something like that? Yeah. And I just loved the pace and just how new everything had to be built. The idea had to be built and sold and brought out. And it was in the internet was still relatively new at the time. It was 1998. So I come into the office one day and again, you're right on West 4th and Broadway, the middle of the village. And these fellows come in from the other company and all they do is work in a closet. They go in behind this door, boom. And you, when you kind of see what's behind the door, it's just stacks of servers just a whole room full of servers. I mean, they look like Marshall amps, like from a music type of thing. Uh-huh. And these guys come in and they, you know, they skateboard into the office, come into the office and they're just high-fiving each other and going nuts. I'm like, what's going on? It's like, oh, we just sold our company. I'm like, you sold your company? Like, who'd you sell your company to? It's like AOL. And the name of that company was Mirabilis ICQ. And Yossi Vardy was the backer Uh that did that deal. Now, those guys had the messaging, you know, the instant messaging platform and we were working right alongside them. I was working on micropayments. They're working on 400 million bucks. I can't remember what it was, but it was super exciting. They were fired up and I'm like, holy smokes, if that's- Like startups. Yeah, in this guy's apartment. Yeah. Because he's like, you know what? I'm the angel investor. You guys need an office. 
there's an empty apartment downstairs. Go ahead and take it. And the two of you can just divide it up. Yeah. And that's kind of how I got interested in tech. Yeah. And just kind of being in that spot, kind of right place, right time, I guess. And then taking the chance and saying, this is actually, I would prefer to do something like this as opposed to running out and trying to do a more traditional brand management type of role because that's what I was studying at school. When you went to Amazon, how many people were there in 2000? A thousand? Five thousand? Yeah. I mean, it's probably more, five, ten. Yeah. Okay. I mean, depending on what you're including as the employee base, if it's like people are working in the warehouse and yeah. that type of stuff too. Yeah. But I worked in business development. Yeah. That team was led by Owen Van Atta. Mm-hmm. Jason Kylar was on the DVD teams and media teams. Dan Rose was, you know, one of the yeah. leaders. Yeah. So it's kind of a 30 for 30 of the internet marketing or BD from way back. Let me ask you this. Yeah. At that point, did you have any idea that like Dan Rose would be who he is today? Meaning, could you tell there was something in the water then? Or were you way too naive to know that this was like a elite group of folks? Well, you know, people are smart and elite. So yeah. there's that. But yeah. then there's like, what's the business? And yeah. is the business going to bring people along with it? Yeah. Or they're going to have more to do? Yeah. And- at that point, I would say, thinking more selfishly, I'm like, is this a place where I want to invest my time and yeah. what am I learning here? And the great thing about being there at the time was that if you were good at what you were doing, they would just keep giving you more and more stuff to do. Yeah. And so the amount of responsibility that you could get just from being curious and learning, because you're making things up, yeah, was great. I loved it. I loved the people I was working with, but, and I could tell that, this digital advertising or marketing thing was working. I could tell you when you dropped a dollar into AOL or MSN or Yahoo at the time, which is where we were spending the money that I could, with certainty, someone clicked on that, came in, bought something. Yeah. Like if that is truth and it's something that you can prove, then why wouldn't everyone want to do that? If that's the alternative to, running some type of advertising that doesn't have that type of attribution. And so what I found was I was increasingly arguing with people (laughs) from other departments at Amazon about advertising where they wanted to spend it on freestanding inserts and newspapers and things, more traditional types of, of marketing. And Microsoft at the time, who was my primary partner, said, look, if you, you buy more of this than just about anybody other than classmates, if you, you know, remember them. You could walk into any retailer or any brand and tell them, here's why I'm spending money in this space, in this digital space, and here's why it makes sense. And they would probably listen to you and say, well, we haven't done that yet, but if it was working that well and you're spending that much money on it over there, then maybe we should try it. But that was a sales role, and I'd never carried a bag before. I'd never had a number, and... I decided, you know what, I'm going to go for it and do it and try it. What was the first job you ever had? Paper route. Paper route? Yeah, for sure. How old were you? I don't know, 10. Where was it? Seattle. That's where I grew up. Seattle? Yeah. And when you were, were your folks together growing up? Yep. Yep. And what was conversation like at the dinner with your folks growing up at the dinner table? We always ate late because my dad came home from work later. Uh My dad was a lawyer and my mom was a first grade school teacher. And my dad always had stories, of course, the like, how was your day? What'd you guys do today? But then my dad's a storyteller and loves telling stories. And so there's always a lot of like discussion around, well, what was he seeing or what's current events, his perspective, he'd kind of hold court that way. Yeah. And so my brother, I have one brother, a younger brother, and he and I, would you know be captive to that. But I look back on it and those experiences were great and formative for me. The amount of time that I've spent out on the road working, doing, you know, different companies and those things, that didn't happen in my family. Like yeah. the, the family that I've built. You have to find other ways to to do that. But those, you know, I wish that there was some way you could translate that to like, oh, every night I was at home for dinner with my kid. Meaning you're saying like with your folks, like they weren't out traveling in the same way so that there was some consistent routine around like dinners at home. Yes. And you don't have that. 
No way. And you have kids. I have one. I have a 19-year-old son. Yeah. And uh, he's out of the nest. He's out of the nest. Yeah. And there was no... Well, he's back in the nest now. So, he, for this, he just came home from his first year of school. Oh, good. Well, so, <laughs> and that's part of the reason why I ask is because I believe that a lot gets taught at the dinner table. For sure. Yeah. And you're saying like, well, you know, is there something else in lieu of the dinner table that we could use as some mechanism as parents to teach our kids the values that we want to instill in them? Yeah. The challenge is that a lot of it is learned through osmosis, mm-hmm. right? Like it's just, what do you and your wife talk about? What did your mom and dad talk about? Sure, there's a line of questioning that I think is probably really important around how did you do at school today? Yep. You know, were you nice to somebody? If nice is a value, whatever it is. Yeah. But I think that there's maybe that connective tissue through osmosis is gone when you're traveling probably. Yeah, and so- Do you we, regret it? I get asked the question about work-life balance and yeah. like how, you know- and there just isn't one. I'll speak for myself. I don't think there's a way that you can balance them and do everything at the same time. At least I haven't been able to do it. Those are hard trade-offs around if you want to lead a team or you have a global role. Like, how do you do that and do things like be at dinner every night? It's impossible. It's impossible. And if you tell people that it's possible, then I just don't think that that's truthful. If you're honest about it and acknowledge, all right, well, if I'm not at home for dinner every night, what are the things that I do to manufacture that at time that I can get with my wife or my son to have that or the family to have those types of conversations? And I'll tell you, Jubin, like a lot of the time, my son played competitive sports and you're driving around here. I could drive him to, oh gosh, what I mean, like some of the places out east, like Stockton. Mm-hmm. You know, you're in the car for an hour and a half and you can talk with your kid then and have a pretty good conversation there. I mean, I made sure that I would have time to manufacture those things, but maybe not in the traditional dinner table sense. And when you're taking on these bigger, because every role feels like it just grows in scope. Mm -hmm. And I think as it grows in scope, it it means you're more busy Mm -hmm. usually, right? Yeah, sure. (laughs) And and also like away from the house, probably in in a lot of instances. Does it cross your mind? Like the trade-off that I always make, and it's different because I don't have kids at home or anything, but it's like I have been pre-wired to achieve. It's just how I am. Mm-hmm. Not just professionally, but in all aspects, like it's just how my brain works. Yep. And so the idea of not pushing the boundaries of achievement mm-hmm. or what I could be or what that potential may be, it's never even dawned on me. I wonder for you in these moments of like, hey, we're going to take your North American role at Amazon and make you a global VP. Do you have it? And you'd be like, no, can't do it. Well, I'm wired the same way. And I want to know, like, it's important to me to know what's the limit or the boundary. And I've had experiences earlier in my career where I would say, maybe I didn't believe in myself about taking the role. I'm not ready to take this role or I did something because I just didn't have enough belief in myself. And I changed that. I just made the decision. I'm like, I'm not going to let someone tell me I'm not capable of something. I will learn it. I will do something to get better and have the skill set, prepare myself for that role. But 100%, there are things that from a global perspective, at the time, I'd never had a global role before. What an awesome opportunity to go and learn about how business gets done in the EU five or in Asia. And for me, selfishly, that's great. Professionally, awesome. There's all sorts of different learning that I can have from that experience. And I'm wired that same way where I'm going to push and keep going until there's something that I've I've like, I've learned enough, or I want to take these things that I've learned here and apply them somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And it's okay to not just continue to be bigger or more, or just keep pushing in that sense. But it's the learning agenda for me as opposed to the size or the scope that's most important. And that can take you to a new city or it can take you to a new company. And in my experience, that type of change or when you're making that change, it's there's tons of learning and good things that happen. There's also disruption that occurs. You know, you have to move your family somewhere or you move to a different city or you have to learn a new culture or you work with new people. Those things are, they're uncomfortable, I guess, at the beginning, but I love that discomfort because I'm always learning. And that just, that activity, 
I need that. Yeah. And so that's the kind of thing that I push for myself. And I think it's, you know, the consistent theme through my resume, you know, postgraduate school and just the work that I do. Yeah. I'm not afraid to take that chance and I'm going to believe that I'm capable of doing it. But have you been able to rewire your achievement orientation in any way to allow space for other things? Like, I don't know how else to ask that. Like, has there ever been a moment where you're like, oh shit, there's just more things yeah, that are like super important to me. Yeah. And work is not everything for yeah. sure, but you're going to be, you know, at times completely out of balance. Yeah. At least I am. I'm fine being overweighted on life at times. Yeah. And you just have to carve that time out. And like, I have to remind myself and, and recognize that, Hey, you're doing these things and you're doing a ton of them. What are you neglecting? Are there other things that you, you know, you need to pay attention to or things that would be good for you that you want to do Yeah. that, you know, if you weren't doing these things, you could go and do. You know what I hear a lot from folks in the younger cohort, like in my group is that, oh, I'm traveling a lot now. I'm paying those deposits down mm-hmm. so that I can take those withdrawals out later. Mm-hmm. And I wonder from your perspective, like, is that real? You know, like, did you tell yourself that story of like, oh boy, like I'm putting this in now so that later yeah. I get to work from home, you know? They're all situation dependent. Yeah. I think if you're putting in those experiences, like I'm going to put in all the travel, I'm going to do these things, or I'm going to work really long hours, yeah. or I'm just going to immerse myself in this topic yeah. or activity you're likely doing it because you want to improve yourself or you're doing it because you want to learn something and you have your eye on something, another step. Mm. And so I'm certain that there are people who say, okay, that's enough. And I'm like, I've done it. And now I'm going to stay. I just like, for me, the learning component is like, so the intellectual curiosity, that exercise for me, really important. Yeah. So even if it's downtime, I'm like, that's still important to me. I can't just be, you know, sitting on my back. Yeah. But for me, all of that work that I did and all the work that you just described or gave yeah. an example about led to more opportunity. So then you're like, okay, well, yeah, do you want to try that? Yeah. Because you've earned your way up to that spot or someone's yeah. going to say, you know what, we need that over here and we need that energy and you need to come here and do it. I recognize that that's not everyone's journey or everyone's choice. Like other people are going to make different choices about that stuff. Do you have any triggers or signals internally? Like when you're learning is saturated somewhere. I'll give you an example for me. And by the way, I recognize you don't know any of the questions that I'm going to (laughs) throw at you. So you might have to pause and and take a beat. Uh, For me, it's like I actually start getting antsy in the sense that I start getting highly impatient Mm -hmm. and I start creating projects or manufacturing maybe tasks or initiatives that I think we should take on when they're not really necessary. You know, like these aren't the most strategic things that we should Mm -hmm. be doing. Mm -hmm. We should just be doubling down on the existing set of things. However, then it feels like maintenance mode to me. And maintenance mode is like my nightmare. I can feel myself when I feel like my learning is saturated is when I'm almost creating things that I'm like, this actually isn't the top priority. We should be doubling down on this. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's that's my trigger. Yeah, for me, I am achievement oriented in the sort of classic, salesperson way yeah. in that even if you were there are tasks that are repetitive or you feel like, Hey, I've done this now a couple different times. I love seeing the results and the output like that to me, taking something that you did a body of work or a set of tasks that you've done, even if you've done them before, if you can then see, Oh, these results are coming in or like, I like that output that keeps me going. It doesn't keep me bored. There are occasions where in jobs that I've worked in where I've said, okay, look, I, I check in with myself more on a time boundary where I'll say, okay, two years you're in, you're learning the role, really finding your way around. Then you have to re-up or, you know, renegotiate with yourself and recommit. Like, am I here for another five? Mm-hmm. Because that's where, you know, I can see my path here. I know what I need to do. And I find at the end of that five years, then in two places, I've said, here's what the future is going to be. I know what this is. I could keep doing this and it might be the same thing. It might be a little bigger, might be more people that you're managing, but it's the same type of skill. And the result is less 
the things that you're going to do are not going to have the same impact that they did on the five years that you spent bringing them out here. So take that and go mm-hmm. somewhere else mm-hmm. and see if you can do those same things. Even if they're similar tasks, you can run that play and you can do it in a different set of circumstances or a different corporate culture for a different business yeah. and then see things happen. I've done that at least three times. Part of what strikes me and part of why I asked the question is because it felt to me like when you joined Amazon, again, I guess you rejoined Amazon, yep. the ads business was very nascent. Mm-hmm. And then you spent, call it seven years, and it's cooking mm-hmm. by the time you leave. Mm-hmm. And then you leave. Yeah. You did all the hard work yeah. building a business inside of Amazon that was then printing cash. Yeah. And then you leave like right when. But the fun part, Truman, the fun part's the build. Yeah. You know, back to the check-in point. But are you thinking about that when you're doing it? Like in hindsight, is it easier to say that? Meaning, are you not thinking about when you're building like the outcome? 100% I'm thinking about the outcomes. Yeah. 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 But in that case, there's so much momentum in that business. Yeah. And the team itself and the organization got so large. If the number of people that I was managing had doubled, be doing the same thing or spending more time managing at an altitude that would keep me out of customer interactions or people with the team, you know, the team yeah. and the actual building part. It's more the yeah. sort of maintenance, if you will. Yeah. And that's, I can't do that. Yeah. And, you know, when I looked over at Instacart, if I sort of you know, put myself back at the, in 2019. Yeah. The thing that's been consistent about those jumps that I've made, I'm always making a bet on a consumer behavior. So I believe that people are in a shop for groceries online at some point. And Amazon tried and really struggled to get a grocery business going. Mm-hmm. Now we had unlocked just about every other category mm-hmm. on that run where I was there. Third-party sellers, first-party brands and suppliers, everything from soap and detergent up to homewares. I mean, they literally lines, apparel. figured everything out. Yeah. yeah. Except for how do we get a ice cream? You can't put ice cream in a cardboard box. You can't put cream cheese in a cardboard box and ship it out of an FC and get it to someone in any form that they're going to want to eat it. And setting up that business is hugely important strategically for them, I believed, and they struggled with it. And then you look over at Instacart, they have that business, they're doing innovative things, and they say, well, we need to figure out how to build some monetization here around advertising or other things beyond just the fees that we're we're earning with the delivery. And at the time... Not a lot of people, consumers were doing, it wasn't like something that had tipped into a, a durable consumer behavior. It's probably something for people from San Francisco would do or in yeah. urban areas like New York City. And I just bet, I'm like, look, I'm, I can take all these experiences that I had here. We can go over there and build it. Yeah. And there's nothing there yet. The fun part would be, let's take everything that we've learned about, build something and work to build that capability. And then bet on the idea that like consumers are going to come in and start shopping that way and be perfectly comfortable and actually prefer to start building baskets of groceries on their phone. Yeah. And sure enough, the pandemic accelerated all of that. But I think- Did you have a light bulb moment when Whole Foods, when Amazon bought Whole Foods? Well, I think everyone did and thought that that made a ton of sense. Totally. Yeah. But groceries are- I mean, my experience, even like the past like five years, really, I've been spending a lot of time on grocery, like conventional grocery. Yeah. And I will tell you that it is probably one of the most underrated logistical or supply chain activities and businesses. Difficulty wise. Difficulty wise. We take it for granted. We take it for granted that we can go into a Safeway or a Whole Foods or a Walmart Mm -hmm. and there's a piece of fruit or a piece of produce that came off of a tree or out of the ground into a truck, into a DC, into a store, into a basket and a refrigerator and ultimately into someone's stomach before it's spoiled. 
And we just take that for granted. It's like, that's just part of the experience for a consumer. You just expect that to happen. Yeah. And from a supply chain standpoint and an operation standpoint, that's a hugely difficult process. And that industry, you come into it and say, okay, well, here's a bunch of technology that we're going to do that's going to solve all these problems or change the way that it works. And I think there's this assumption that they can improve so much of the process and that they've been doing it wrong for so long. I'm like, I have a great appreciation now for how those stores are operated yeah. and the types of people that operate them. Yeah. And I just think we, as biz, most business people just take that for granted. Did it feel strange when you went to Instacart? Yeah. And I'm just guessing, you tell me if I'm wrong, the size of your team and ads business at Amazon was probably more than all of Instacart. Uh, yeah. By yeah. a lot. Yeah. By a lot. Was that just like, uh, oh, f- like, what am I doing? You know? No, no, it wasn't at all. Because so I went in eyes wide open. You have to like yeah. to make that. It's like, well, why would you ever go yeah. and work there? Like, because if you believe like I had just a lot of conviction around the idea that consumers are going to start shopping for groceries that way. Yeah. And if someone can figure out how to profitably deliver that service and that expectation that the consumer has around freshness of grocery, that's going to be a very durable business model. And uh, so that yeah. was, that's what got me excited about it. So it didn't, I wasn't thinking about, well, I used to manage, you know, 1500 people over here and now there's 1500 people with this entire company. Yeah. But no, like the fun parts, like what are we going to build here? Are we going to build a team? First of all, yeah. get the right people in here and the right skills and then people that have the same level of passion or, uh, and conviction around setting up the business. Yeah. That is hugely invigorating, especially when the alternative is or where you came from in the last year and a half. Like in my case was sitting around in a room, you know, reading six pagers and managing the business from, you know, way up here. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So I loved it. Yeah. I agree with you on the creation side. One of the ways that I describe it is that I've always found it much more rewarding making money rather than actually having the money. Does that make sense? (laughs) Does that make sense? Even though I always think I want the actual money, I always in hindsight look back and I'm like, God, trying to get there was actually the fun part. Yeah. Not the paycheck. I don't know. It's a kind of a weird parallel, but I think about that a lot. No, I, I, you know, that could be a bad habit. I love the build though, Juben. Yeah. That's the like yeah, it's the climb. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. You got there in November of 19 and uh 3 4 months later COVID happened. Yeah. I don't like to talk about COVID that much on this show. It's sure. just like kind yeah. of a depressing topic of time. Yeah. Um but the business at least doubled. Probably way more. Like 5xed that year. The Instacarts, the Zooms, the sure. DoorDashes like yeah. Yep. You know, like yep. all kind of in the same category. That's Probably right. Walmart at the time, yep. like uh, on their pickup yep. and delivery business. Yep, for sure. But this was like the ultimate tailwind That's right. to this business. Yep. How insane was that? How insane was that feeling of, oh my God, any forecast that I wrote is off by hundreds of percents. Mm-hmm. And oh, by the way, like all this crazy shit's happening in my life, right. you know, but like- and we're oh all my, stuck here. But like, you have to hire a, a team. We have a responsibility yeah. to like deliver this yep. service to yep. people. How insane was that time? It was crazy. And, you know, on top of that, there was the, how do we find enough shoppers to go out and deliver? And then how do we keep them safe while we're keeping customers safe as well? And- you see operationally, I mean, these are like these crucible moments of like something happens and how's the organization going to respond? And I wasn't out managing the, getting the labor in and in the, the shoppers to come in, but watching other people operate that way and under those circumstances was impressive and a great learning moment. And, you know, that experience Ruben, was very similar to the sort of after effect that I witnessed at Walmart even last year. And you could see it across retail where you had all of these, there was a time where you couldn't, you could sell everything, anything that you could find on the shelf was sold. 
you remember you're running out of paper towels. You're running, I mean, some categories, like you just, you couldn't get the product in fast mm-hmm. and it was just gone. I think that created a lot of purchase behaviors from merchants where they go out and buy, just send it over. And so then things shut down in China or where things are manufactured. It doesn't show up on time. You miss a season, then you're holding inventory. Mm-hmm. You have these huge backloads of inventory mm-hmm. and watching like at Walmart, the team work through that. And, you know, there was mention of that publicly in earnings statements, but you watch Target, same thing. Mm-hmm. These big retailers working through those things. And those are knock-on effects of behaviors that happened, you know, from two years ago. With yeah. COVID. And it's that same type of like, how are you managing in this crisis to figure out like, what do we need to do? Cause we've never seen this before. Yeah. And this isn't just validation of our business model. Like in the Instacart case, this is really like creating an operational risk for us where we have a whole bunch of inventory that we can't put on the shelf because we've already got stuff on the shelf. Yeah. Or maybe the things that are coming in are a different season than we needed them because they were shipped late. So watching the merchant teams, and the operational teams at Walmart work through that. Yeah. For me as an intellectual exercise was incredible. Must've been insane. Yeah. You know, we talk about some of them publicly in terms of like, well, what are your inventory positions? Yeah. And those are things that analysts look at, but being in the actual, you know, the room when we're talking about all these things, watching it happen was really, I mean, very impactful. If you could explain sales to an, <laughs> to an alien, how would you succinctly describe it? Uh, to an alien, geez. I mean, sales to me is about storytelling and about influence or persuasion. If you can't tell the story and do it in a way that people can relate to, then I think you're going to have a hard time convincing people or influencing them to, you know, take action. It could be buying water. It could be, you know, investing in a product. It could be a vote. Yeah. I've heard you say that advertising is not an industry or career that you can passively engage in. I thought that was really interesting. Could you explain that? (laughs) Well, first off, back to the travel and all the work, like you have to be in person meeting with brands or brand owners or companies that are manufacturing these products or services that need to be sold. From an advertising perspective, you're working with those people as an ad seller or publisher, and then you're also working with agents of those people. So you've got you know two or three different points in that demand chain, if you will, that you need to talk to and you need to be influencing, you need to be working with and learning from. And I know the expectation is that you do that in person. You do it sometimes, you know, out at a, in a meeting in a formal conference room, or sometimes it's going to be at a conference. Sometimes it's going to be at a meal. And, you know, again, those are hard trade-offs where it sounds glamorous, like, oh, you're going to go to the, you know, whatever the game, the Warriors game or something like that. Yeah. Or the film festival. Yeah. Or the film. Fe- or, yeah. And yeah. that's time away from doing like, you're not with your family when you're doing that. Yeah. And it's full contact that way in terms of the, like, you have to be, you can't do it remotely. I don't think everyone in the industry is forced to do that during COVID. And there are certainly, you know, things that working in these digital environments is okay for some tasks, but I know that people are eager to get back together in person to discuss, especially when you're ideating or, you know, there's some new idea or it's a new brand. We want to tell you about it. It's just easier to do or more impactful to do in person. Yeah. And that may require me getting on a plane. Yeah. might require other people getting on a plane and coming out and spending time, carving the time out to do it. Yeah. So if you're passively going to sit back and say, hey, it's just going to come to me, then someone else is going to go take it from you. I am super curious. One of the big reasons why I wanted you on the show is because the decision to go from an Instacart, yeah. which is like, let's say our world, Kleiner yeah. Perkins's world, right. literally and figuratively, mm-hmm. To a Walmart is a fascinating one. And I feel like in our world, meaning like startup innovative world, we have a limited perspective on what happens at the stalwarts of business. I have an incredible amount of admiration for the Walmarts of the world. And by the way, they're starting to look a lot more like the types of companies that we would invest in. Like Mm -hmm. these are, Walmart is very quickly becoming a digitally enabled business. 
I bet you there's conversations at the executive level that you have of like, is this a technology business? People are like, yeah, I think it is, <laughs> you know? Uh, so I, I wondered first, what was the interview process like? I am fascinated by there is, how long has Walmart been around as a business? 60 years. 60 years. There are rituals and routines that are probably so legit mm -hmm. that are institutionalized mm -hmm. that I think we could learn something from. I just wonder that like, maybe can you just put me in that world of how did that happen? Yeah. What was the process like? Sure. A couple, couple comments there. So one from a process standpoint, my experience of going you know, from Instacart to Walmart was not dissimilar from my experience of going from Yahoo back to Amazon. Yeah. You know, Walmart had reached out to me before, but it was clear that they had not read my LinkedIn page. It was just like a straight recruiting yeah. call. And I'm like, look, you know, do a little more homework before you send an inbound into me about coming over there. Cause you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. So I just never engaged with them. Yeah. And I had a friend reach out and say, Hey, look, Walmart's interested in chatting. Would you talk to them? And I'm like, look, I guess I'll talk with them from a networking perspective. If I'm going to be talking with, you know, John Ferner or Doug McMillan. John being the CEO, this, US the business US, CEO. Yep, yeah. yep. And Doug, the global CEO. CEO yep. And that call was set up. And really it was as much me being pretty direct with John and John's a direct person. I'm like, look, are you serious about this? About what? Building a, these alternative revenue streams. Because they challenge convention within a traditional retail operation. And that's what I had learned at Amazon. A lot of scar tissue from that experience. What do you mean? Meaning that the... It's not the core competency of the business. It's not the core competency of the business. And then you are engaging when you're running a retail media business or you're commercializing data that has never been sold before. You're engaging with a supplier in a way that a merchant has largely been the, the sort of customer of the supplier. You know, they're usually saying, hey, I'm writing you the PO. Here's how much product I'm going to buy from you. I'm the customer. And then you have an advertising or retail media team come in or a data team come in and say, hey, look, Juven, we've got great opportunities for you to start driving more sales. We've got opportunity for you to improve your efficiency and your operations with this data. And so you become the customer of this team. You started that triangulated relationship. Yeah. Didn't exist, I would argue, in retail. Certainly didn't at Amazon when I got there in you know, February of 2012. It was the same thing. Yeah. So you have a conversation with the brand, the merchant or the vendor manager in the case of Amazon might say, look, that's my relationship. We do these things. This is how we operate. I'm like, if the sort of aperture of that operation and that relationship that you have is so transactional, it's just based on the cost of this item. And you're not helping them understand how they can move more product or create, you know, go from the number two brand to the number one brand, then we're missing an opportunity for us to drive more sales. But then also they're missing the opportunity to do more for their business. And it's, it's right here for us. If we just execute, this is something we want to do. But many operations within sort of traditional retailer struggle with that. It's just not something that they want to do. So that to me, in my experience at Amazon, lots of times like, hey, don't talk with them. We're, the, we're in charge here. Right. Don't go in and sell them anything advertising until we're done with our negotiations on these things on these other contractual items or what we're, you know, negotiating a price on what we're buying or an amount. And I'm very much of the belief it have been when I was there and, it, and still am that the lines between trade marketing and merchandising and advertising are getting very, very blurry. And there's going to be just one sort of pool of funds to do business with these retailers and the places where those funds drive the most output in terms of sales, those are the places that are going to win. And that was a long road at Amazon to get to that spot where it was like, okay, this is yeah. something we're going to embrace yeah, and we're going to chase and make it grow. You want to make sure you didn't fight that fight again. Yeah. But I knew I was going to have to. It was just whether I had the air cover from up top to say, this is strategic. Yeah. We're going to power through. And they obviously convinced me of that. And we're making really good progress. And that's the fun part about it is that 
the scale is so large. Even like you, you talk about the why you would be interested in a, a big Walmart type of thing as opposed to these startups or how they they might be similar. You know, we have forty seven hundred stores in the U.S. We might be thirty to forty percent of revenues for some of these very large companies from a just total revenue standpoint, and it's humbling to go out and be in the stores and see how much of that product moves and how many people come into the stores and shop and how they shop. But the interesting thing about the cultural stuff that you had mentioned is that you would be surprised. I think if you spent even two weeks at Walmart on the ground in headquarters, or even as an associate in a store, that it's a founder led business. And you would see like, oh, there's the same things that we see around these startups where you have someone come in who's the founder, who's very charismatic or very convicted around what they're doing and building, that even 60 years later, those things still- Endure. They do. Yeah. There's Sam Walton influence all over the business, whether you're in the store working on a register or you're back doing the Walmart cheer before you get the day started, or you're at headquarters and you're sitting down and we're negotiating or trying to decide on a controversial strategic topic. Yeah. Do you go to the stores? Of course I do. Like, do you do the like uh, undercover? You're not. You're not undercover. Undercover set. You're not thing? undercover. No, it's in it, the store walks are great. What do you do in the store walks? I've been in store walks with Doug and with John and other leaders across like? the business. They walk in and they become operators immediately, and that's the thing. They many people that I work with have been at the company for thirty Life years. First. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and they've only worked at one company. And maybe they came up off the register, they were unloading trucks or they, you know, they were doing something to get started. And then they just sort of moved up the ladder into more larger positions of leadership. But you go in and you look, are the floors clean? You know, is the parking lot clean? What's the back of the room look like? Like how many delivery orders are being staged? Like I'm not dialed in enough in my own physical retail skill set yet to know instinctively like, boom, I have three things that I look for. And then I know whether the store is, running, is, is well. running well. Yeah. When I go on a store walk with John, he will, I'm like, what are you looking for? He's like, there's three things I know I'll go and check and I won't share them because they don't, you know, they kind of don't want people of course. to know. Of course. He's like, there's three things I know that if these things are in place, these are the tells. things that you watch out for. They're yeah. important tells and whether the store is being managed well. Yeah. And they're fun to go on because you do get to interact with customers who are, you know, they're shopping and they come up and offer you advice. They know that you're not secret at all. They're going to see you, you're wearing your badge. They're going to come in and say, Hey, are, do you work here? Let me tell you something. We need more of these baskets, or I would love it if you carried this product, or I love coming in here because the person, you know, so-and-so works over there. And like, that's, I love coming to the store you get that feedback from them very real. Yeah. And that's different than the experiences that I've had at, totally. you know, in a marketplace where you're, you don't interact with the customer necessarily yeah. or you know, Amazon where it's like, it's basically sent out. So you don't have right. that interaction unless right. it's someone you know, with the person that's delivering the package to you. And I wonder when the feedback is delivered, you know, I put myself in our world where founders and founder type businesses, every detail matters. Yeah. Like, you show me a founder in at least the KP portfolio, I'll show you someone that does not miss a single detail. Right. Nothing. Yeah. Obsessive. Yeah. Like unhealthy obsessive, you know? <laughs> and I've always thought that it's really hard to balance this thing of caring about the details to the point where everyone understands mm-hmm. the bar, mm-hmm. the excellence bar, mm-hmm. but also not coming in from their CEO throne yep. and shitting all over what everybody's, people are well-intentioned, right. you know? Right. So I, you know, I guarantee you there's probably an art there that, is, that yeah. has been, uh, And yeah. it's, it's a great leadership lesson for me because watching Doug McMillan get on his hands and knees at a store and start pulling apparel forward because that's the way it should be merchandised and teaching like that. And in a way where he's not throwing a bolt of lightning down from a mountain or scolding someone, he's like, look, this is how, let me show you this, do these things. To me, as a leader of, you know, 1.3 million people, you know, here in the largest private employer in the United States, you have people that are in that story probably scared to see someone walk in and then start looking around and operating 
but he does it in a way. And John Turner does the same thing. They do this in a way where I was a store manager. I used to do this. Let me show you do these things. They'll improve the customer experience. You know, they'll help you with the better store experience. How do you take that as someone who's, who could come in and just start firing off all sorts of, you know, do this, do that, yeah. boom, boom, boom. And maybe I'm certain that at one point in the company, there are probably people that do that. Um, and they probably so are today, but the, if you're operating at the level where John or Doug are operating, I think it's really impressive and a good reminder. Like you can, you're teaching moments here with people and like how you lead everything that you do is observed and interpreted and picked apart by people who are there. How you show up really matters and they don't have any errors about them at all. Yeah. They become store operators. It's very, to me, it's, it's really impressive. The other lesson I kind of take from this, or maybe the other parallel that I draw to, to my world is that our best leaders are deeply, deeply product oriented, mm-hmm. meaning they are steeped mm-hmm. in understanding the product and the way that it solves problems for customers. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, that means that they're the technical founder that hands-on keyboard wrote the piece of software that now yep. is the backbone of their business. Yep. Or in other cases, it's they're the end user of the product every day, like Parker at Rippling. They're a payroll and expense management company, amongst a bunch of other things. I don't mm-hmm. want to sell them short, sorry, <laughs> Parker. But nonetheless, Rippling is a thousand plus person company now or something, and he approves every single expense. He does. Yep. You know, he's steeped in it. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of also why probably there's so many people whose heritage is Walmart that grow up and are still at the company because they're steeped in understanding every facet of the business, the yeah. product that yeah. is Walmart. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And the, that tenure is really important, especially for as an observer, you know, I've been here for a year and a half in role. And I didn't have an experience. I didn't grow up with a consumer experience at Walmart. I grew up in Seattle. I'm a native, you know, Northern Californian. I went to school in New York City. Like there weren't Walmarts around. I can't like say, oh, there's like, this is how the store operates. This is what I expect. In fact, there's a lot of bad false narratives out there about the way the stores operate. So when you get in there and you see how they're operating and that they do it profitably, you're like, this scale of this store is huge. And how people are operating there, you have to know. It's a lot of it is an art form. As much as there is the science and the numbers, like these are the things we're measuring you on, you have to know that, like, when you see this, you do that. Like you pattern match across all these different stores, and you get that from being in the store twenty four seven. Like, what are you seeing here? I've seen that before. This isn't new to me. We respond these ways. This is what you do when you do this. And I don't think those things necessarily avail themselves to paper or a spreadsheet all the time. Yeah. You got to be on the ground. You know, the other thing that um, this made me think of is just this idea of compound interest in one place. Meaning in my world, there's a lot of just jumping. Yeah. You know, like you built what, eight, nine years of career at one place in Amazon. And then in fact, you know, a couple of years before that too, almost Mm -hmm. 10 total. Yeah. Like there's something just to be said about compounding in one place these folks that have worked at one place for so long just continue to reap the rewards of the social, political yeah. knowledge capital that they continue to accumulate over time. I just think there's something to that. Yeah, I think there's, but it cuts both ways. So if you're trying to do something new, like my role at the company is let's grow a retail media business. Mm. Let's create a new business around data signals. Mm. Let's go out and create a membership platform. Those aren't things that the company has a lot of history in. So when you bring someone in from outside, you say, okay, here's what we need to do in order to build a retail media business. It's like, well, I've been doing my business functionally for 30 years in the same place. I don't want to do that. I don't think we should do it. So how are you going to convince that person that you're right? And so you need that sort of, belief from someone else, whether it's a peer or or you're in this case, the CEO to say, look, this is what we're investing here. We're going to go and do this and build it in an environment or in an organization that doesn't have a command and control, like single threaded design, then back to the, you know, full contact nature of the business. Like you got to be there in person. 
because I'm going to have to work with you. I can't just tell you what to do. We're going to go and do it. That's a single threaded organizational structure. We're heavily matrixed. So you're buying all the product. I'm trying to sell stuff to people that you're buying it from. If we work together, we can get this bigger outcome for customers. It'll be better for customers and be better for the supplier too. But you have that compounded interest or capital, but it can also, you know, you're just going to keep doing things the same way you've been doing them for a while too. You run that risk. What's the toughest feedback you've gotten since you've been at the company? Where you're like, at Walmart? Oh, yeah. Or just in your career. Like, is there a piece of feedback that you're just like, oh, yeah. That hit home. <laughs> yes. And this one, it's true. I won't name names, but I was at, this is at Amazon. And I was having a conversation with somebody and he says, well, you're too sentimental. You're using too much sentiment. You need to let the data make all the decisions. You have to be completely objective about just the data is going to show you the way that's the decision. Don't use any sentiment. It's a defect. And I thought, okay, how many defects do I have? And having someone tell you that and you own it. And I'm like, okay, culturally, I get it. I understand that. But I've thought a lot about it, Juben, because you know, my immediate response was, look, you're asking me to go, or you're asking 1,500 people to go take a hill or take a task on that seems impossible. How are you going to get those people motivated and see their way to success without introducing some motivation or something that's going to get them excited? some belief that they can actually go and do it. You could just spit the piece of paper out and say, go do this. That's what machines do. That's the goal. Take the sheet of paper, go and do it. But these people are not going to operate that way. Most of them won't. It's my job to get them. You, we can do this. Here's how we're going to get there. I know you can't see it right now and it feels impossible. It's my job and my, the leaders in this organization to show them that it's possible and, and get them motivated to do it. And I don't think that was too influential on my boss at the time because he's just like, ah, you know, whatever. <laughs> of course, you're going to say that you're a salesperson. But when I came into a different culture and started working really in grocery stores, grocery stores are people oriented businesses. There's a reason why there's someone at Walmart at the front door greeting you when you come in. There's a reason why there's a person at the cash register. There's a reason why there's someone wandering around in the aisle stocking product. And that gives the consumer some confidence that, hey, if I have a question, I can get an answer to it. Or these are people in my community that work here and they're part of my community. And that's inherently sentimental. It's people oriented. And if you're going to set up a business like a grocery store and it's going to look like a laboratory, then I think you lose that sentiment. The data would tell you, go and build that. That's what you should build. And the reality is that you're really going to struggle with that because everything about introducing people or sentiment into that business, which is the advantage, the data is going to tell you, don't do it. It's too expensive. Take it out, remove the sentiment, let the data own it. So that's been a huge learning for me. It was a tough piece of feedback to get at the time because when you're in a discipline within a company like that, like Amazon, you've had Mike Clayville on the show and he ran AWS. Before AWS and before... Amazon advertising, there were not sales roles at Amazon. Certainly not large. It wasn't a function that, in my experience, the company really valued. And now you have huge teams doing it. They have to have them to be successful. But from a sentiment standpoint, those roles, oftentimes they, they look for, you're telling me I have to do 50% more, I got to grow this 100%. How do I do it? It's just going to tell me to go and do it. Like, Get me excited about this. I have to get fired up. I have to believe that I can go and take that on. And I think that's very, to me, in my experience in watching founders and entrepreneurs operate, they have that, a very similar mentality because there's a lot of disbelief. You're going to get told no a million times. No, not a good idea. No, I don't believe you. No, you're not getting money. No, And you're going to hear that a million times before someone might say, okay, great. Or you're going to have to prove them wrong. And if you're going to prove them wrong, can you do it all by yourself or you can bring people along with you who are going to believe? When you bring people along with you to some of these different places, like as an example, yeah. to inst like your team has followed you quite loyally, yeah. which is impressive. Yeah. How do you tell them you're leaving? 
Like you, um, you spend all this time and energy recruiting them. Yeah. Well, look, part of the leaving part, I'm pretty straightforward about it, but leaving, I'm hoping that in each case where I've left, it's created opportunity for someone else. Like we're not doing the same things that we were doing before. Totally. We're doing bigger things. We're doing better things. And there are plenty of people who I have a ton of respect for and work very closely with and recruited that didn't, haven't come with me to other jobs or they've gone to other places and done great things. That to me, I don't want to say I don't care, but like they're ready. They're ready to do something and they're going to be better for me leaving. Or, you know, if I enjoy working with them too, and I think we're working on something and there's great opportunity over here, I'm going to go and recruit them. That's been a critical part of my success as a business person. It's not just me. I can't do all this stuff. And that's why if you look like some of the, in these places that I've been, I know there are great people. I love working with them. They make me better. And if there's more to do, yeah, get over here. Let's go. Let's do something. Like they share the same mentality around building. And I wouldn't be where I am, Jubin, without those teams. Like I, I couldn't just drop in somewhere and do stuff myself. On your way out, have you written handwritten have you given handwritten notes to folks? Oh, of course. Yeah. What do you mean, of course? That's not of course. Well, I don't just do it on the way out, but um, yeah. Like, when's the last time you got a handwritten note? Uh, it's been a long time. <laughs> okay. I write them every year okay. at the end of the year. Okay. And do people comment on them when oh, they- Oh, yeah. Yeah. And by the way, it takes a long time. It does. <laughs> it does take a long time. But I think people, you know, recognition is important for people. And not just like compensation recognition or like awards that you're winning, but sending you an email saying you're doing a great job. Great. Okay. Bank it. But if you're going to sit down and pull out a piece of paper and write out something that says, Hey, Jubin, thanks for that. Or this is, you impacted me in this way, or thank you for all you've done for the business. It's worth it to do that. To me, that recognition goes a long way in terms of, again, motivating people you can call it sentimental, but I do it because I think it's the right thing to do to recognize people that way. It takes a lot of time, sure, but like every note I've sent out of that, not everyone, most of them, someone will come back and say, hey, I haven't received a handwritten note from anyone that maybe my grandmother in the last you know year or two for a holiday or something like that. So it's definitely old timey, but I think it's impactful. You give your teams books to read? Yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah. I love reading. Yeah? Yeah. Tell me more. What books? When? What are you trying uh, to get out of it? Well, how do you review it with them? So, you know, at Amazon, you read a lot, all the narratives and six pagers and all those types of things. They express things in long form narratives. And so I found if you're going to write or read, that being able to see the way other people write or the way, you know, read different, it just the way that you're reading, the types of things you're reading is just an important muscle to develop. So I would read fiction and nonfiction. So it's not just like business books and that type of stuff, but gosh, what, when this, I got asked this question last week in a session with the team of managers and the two books that I gave, one was the goal. I love the goal. And the second book was On the Shortness of Life by Seneca. So those two books are hugely impactful to me, like personally, from a business standpoint, the goal and the theory of constraints, like, you know, the way that it was uh, the narrative and sort of the novelization of the topic is a little corny. But the point is like, what, from a constraint standpoint, like what are the bottlenecks? How do you remove them? That theory of constraints is like hugely important to the way that I think about business and building and just how you're going to set things up to scale. The Seneca stuff, I found that book 10 years ago, maybe. And I wish that someone had shown me that book 20 years ago, back to time management and balance and things. So the notion that time is the one thing we all have equal amounts of, you know, in a day, in any given sense, but like you throw it away. You waste it. If you're not careful, you're super protective with your money, but you throw away your time. And the time might be the most valuable resource that you have. That book, it's like 100 pages. The name of the book? On the Shortness of Life by Seneca. It's awesome. And I read it every year. 
And so, yes. And it's something you just, I can just revisit casually. But when you're talking with the, I think I was talking with like a bunch of new people managers or relatively new people managers and this work-life balance. Like it's always one of the questions that comes up. It's like, well, how do you manage your time? You have meetings, you have places to go, or uh, you have to decide, are you going to go here or go there? Are you going to go to Arkansas? Are you going to go to New York? And just reminders to be present and think about that and like where you're spending your time. It sounds simple, but that's where I can get lost. Just like, I want to do everything. And then you turn around, it's like, well, now I'm overcommitted or I haven't done the things where I should be attending to them or I could be more balanced over here or overweighted in one other area to compensate for something else I've been spending time on. That to me, it's very powerful reminder. Yeah, I think well said. Are you going to Bentonville now? Yeah, oh yeah, all the time. I'm there probably at least one week out of every month. Headquarters. Walmart headquarters, headquarters, yeah. I you bought a house there. there. You bought a house there? Yeah, yeah, I'm excited about it. Look, Northwest Arkansas. You're going one week a month? Yeah, at, at least, least. At least, yeah. I'd encourage everyone to go there. I'll meet That's you real there. Let me, walk, let me walk a Walmart with you Come in out. Bentonville. And if you mountain bike, yeah, they have the best mountain bike trails in the U.S. Yeah. There's been a ton of investment around that. There's great restaurants. There's cultural things. They have a great art museum. You have the university 25 miles to the south. You want to go watch an SEC football game or something like that. And the natural beauty of that area of the Ozarks really pretty impressive. So I've actually been really surprised. I, I've liked it quite a bit. The obvious question that it just kind of begs for me is like, that's a lot. Yeah. Are you running on fumes? No. I mean, there are times when you're going to be running on fumes for sure. Yeah. But then like, okay, what are you going to do to, you know, refuel? Like yeah. tomorrow I'm going to go, I love going to the desert outside of Joshua Tree. Yeah. That's where I'm headed tomorrow. Yeah. I'm going to go down there, meet my wife. My son's in town. We're going to go hang out down there, hike, Yeah. be outside, go see some music. That to me is like refuel. It's awesome. Yeah. But then I know... Next week, boom, I'm on a plane where I'm going back out and I'm in Arkansas for four days. Yeah. And I'm locked in when I'm there. So, but yeah. I mean, that, that's not unique. No. Like people do that. That's yeah. what you do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think we've lost the script a little bit on that, but yes, that is what we do. Yeah. Um, did I appreciate you doing this? I conclude all these things the same way. The first is, are you hiring? Is, yes. Like, yes. what are you hiring for? Do Everything. you have to go to Bentonville to work for you? No, you don't. So first answer, yes, I'm hiring. Okay. I'm hiring a lot. But you can live in New York. We have offices in New York. We have offices in Chicago. We have offices in San Francisco, Bay Area, Sunnyvale, San Bruno. We just opened an office in LA. And we have the headquarters in Bentonville. So it's kind of choose your own adventure in terms of where you want to work. And then we have functions, everything from advertising sales, like retail media, all the way up through management positions, data, and uh, membership, all of it. And if you're good in finance or some other function, you want to work in ops or supply chain, and you want to come and work at Walmart, you can reach out to me too, and I'll put you in touch with people who Turns out who it's the largest in employer in the United we States. Ha- we have quite a few job openings, yeah. yeah. And we hire a lot of people. Um, <laughs> when you hear the word grit, yeah, who do you think of? Who do I think of? Of course, um, the only question I prepped you for, I change on you. Yeah, no, that's okay. Because um, this is going to sound like an odd answer, but it's the first one that came to me. I think of David Bowie from a grit standpoint. Grit to me is about resolve and about having a outcome from a set of experiences that you've had. And first of all, I love his music, but I have a great appreciation for someone who drove a ton of innovation, took a ton of risks at a time. You know, if you're in late 1960s, you decide you want to start dressing like a space alien and making music about outer space and taking on other personas. Plenty of people are going to tell you, you're crazy. This is terrible. And he just persists, does it anyway, executes by himself to do it. All this comes from an art exhibit that is a state put on Jubin that was pretty impactful to me, obviously. <laughs> But I just think of all the obstacles that someone like him would go through. And I think many artists do, whether you're a musician or a a fine artist. 
it's very easy to critique those things. People that just say, hey, no, it's not good enough. I don't like it. We're done. And how you respond to that is grit. Are you going to get up and say, you know what? I don't care what you think. I'm going to keep going because there are other, I want to do it. And there are other people that relate to this, that feel like I do or this way. That to me is important. I see that more often in artists, whether they're musicians or, you know, people that are creating art that, you know, is in a museum or hangs on a wall in someone's home as I do in business. And I think it's really important. Wow. I'm glad I asked that. Seth, I appreciate you. Thank you. Thanks, Ruben. Yeah, I appreciate it. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to come back every Monday morning to listen to a new guest or go back into the archives when we've done more than 100 episodes. This podcast is a Kleiner Perkins production and the episode was edited by Eric Johnson from Lightning Pod. Thank you all.